Hello, everybody. It's Tyler Willis. I'm one of the creators of Anti-Pessimist and this conversation series. It's a little bit of a weird conversation series. This is a podcast that is usually only published to members. Occasionally, we publish a public episode. However, the reason we do that is because we've been able to create a vetted community of people that we know are going to engage in good faith. And that means that we can attract guests to go into issues they might not normally feel comfortable talking about publicly. So we'll cover things from racial issues to gender issues to money, sex, and politics, all of the things that might be a little bit scary to talk about. If this is the first time you've ever heard one of these, I have to start with a directive. For the next hour or two, turn off the cynical part of your brain. Turn off the negativity that is common in internet culture today, and instead, listen with an open mind and an open heart. You don't have to believe everything. You don't have to become a fervent cheerleader. You don't have to turn off your brain, but you do have to engage in good faith. If you can do that, then let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Hey, everybody. Today, I am joined by Suman Sadu. Uh, Suman, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tyler, for, uh, for getting, getting this going. Absolutely. I'm super excited to do this as a kind of follow-up to our initial discussion. Obviously, we had that like awesome Angelist radio podcast. And I suspect, actually, even though that that was two, three, four years ago now, um, I've watched you kind of keep a lot of the themes that you discussed in that episode, like moving, right? It's whether it's been through your investing or through the companies you've been looking at. You just started a couple of things that are around this and kind of exploring the idea of national empires. And so I'm super fascinated to, to kind of dig in on that area. Mm-hmm. Although I'll note that, yeah, the, the content of these is it's always super wide ranging. So I'll, I'll ask you a bunch of odd questions, but sure. I'm excited to kind of get the recap on what you've learned over the last four years. Before we dive in, for people that aren't familiar with you, that haven't heard that episode, that haven't seen you on Twitter, that, that haven't met you yet, do you want to give just kind of a brief synopsis of your background and then kind of what the things that you're uniquely focused on now are? Yeah, totally. So I'm originally from the UK. I moved to um, I moved to San Francisco in 2007, um, was part of the fifth batch of YC. Um, so I was one of the first sort of non-US founders as part of YC built a company called SnapTalent, which, um, you know, ended up raising money successfully, but not succeeding because of market timing, then helped build a company called Quid, for, which focuses on sort of mapping the knowledge that's inherent within documents. So learned a lot about applications of NLP, helped successfully commercialize Quid and kind of sold a lot of software. So like $2.6 million in sort of my, my, my last year there. Then co-founded and, and built a company called Muse, which is focused on searching inside of video, which is now live. Um, built that between New York and Portugal. Um, we were, ended up raising money from folks like Horizons Ventures. Um, yeah, previously, Quid was backed by people like Founders Fund, um, Peter Thiel. Now it's backed by Salesforce Ventures, you know, 150 people in SF. Muse is 15 people in, in Portugal. And then, yeah, have been investing sort of globally, um, so I've invested in companies in India, in Indonesia, in Africa, in um, Southeast Asia. Some of my most uh, successful investments, probably not well known to a U.S. audience, but in India, like ClearTax, which is the default way by which companies and businesses do their tax filings online. So it's the number one in India, about sort of 15 to 20% of tax filings in India flow through them. Very successful company. Last valued at $500 million and kind of approaching billion dollars in valuation company in Indonesia called Zendit, which is the default B2B payments layer. So I think having grown up in London, back in London, I helped start Seedcamp. 
um, having done YC, having been in the Valley since, you know, sort of 2000, 2007 to 2017, and then having left the Valley to focus on like what's going on outside, really like sort of my vantage point is I'm a global citizen by nature. Um, I'm used to being in, in many different countries and I've really become fascinated with the idea of investing in sort of the next great companies globally, as well as um, sort of living globally and, and, and kind of, you know, finding, finding opportunities that are really focused on that almost borderless like way of being. And that's kind of my state of mind. So, uh, and then originally I studied as a biochemist, so I also have a fascination for, for life and, uh, and all of the ways that can be explained through understanding our biology. Awesome. There's a lot of what I'd call more traditional questions that I think are things I want to dive into, but I'm curious as a global citizen, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is, is where you start and stop in your understanding of different cultures. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering as somebody who's really straddled this world between being very central in the kind of U.S. central modes, at least around tech startups. You know, one of the first people in YC worked for companies. You've been backed by companies like Founders Fund. You know, you've you've worked at a lot of the the central nodes in tech, but then you've also had this kind of mm -hmm. exploration of the global edges uh, for years. So I'm curious, where before we dive into exploring that in a more traditional way, where do you maybe feel that your your knowledge or experience or your ability to be a a citizen in the world kind of stops in a world that might be more familiar to listeners here, like the U.S. tech environment? So, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to answer the question of, like, why did I move to the U.S.? And then that will kind of illuminate what's culturally unique about the U.S., which can act as a sort of almost an export to other places. And so I think sure. first thing is in the U.K., people told me that I was too ambitious. And I think that there's like, you know, culturally, like the UK is kind of modest, although rigorous in certain dimensions of creativity and like kind of work. But also at the same time, people are kind of culturally not necessarily fond of like really, really bold thinking, at least overtly so. And so like one of, one of the comforts that I got from coming to the US was really like this encouragement around, you know, like Paul Graham was really one of the first people to tell me, hey, I like really believe that you and you guys from the UK are like are good. And just to him saying something like that and giving us an opportunity. So I think that there's there's something around like an encouragement safety net that exists in the US, which always is something that's lacking in in, in sort of many other cultures that are more risk averse or sort of more traditional in their outlook. And I think that that is you know, we see we see sort of similar things in, in in China. Like there is definitely like a sort of bashful ambition, which is like almost boundless, and that you can do anything. And I and I think that like those are two examples of startup cultures that are very very successful with respect to the amount of value that has been created. And so like really, what yeah, one one sort of thing about you know kind of operating from a center of gravity in the u.s and you know in in sort of thinking thinking from 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 that way out is that a lot of a lot of environments you know don't have that level of encouragement and secondly don't have an encouragement itself as a currency a cultural currency that uh that can be very powerful that makes sense to me and i think it's i think it's fairly critically important there's two things I want to kind of double click on there. So one is I actually think of you, like if I were to describe your brand to somebody who'd never met you, <laughs> so I was trying to kind of condense that as narrowly as possible yeah. based on the 10 years you and I have known each other. 
I would argue that kind of the most unique thing that you do is that you give people the gift of ambition. Mm-hmm. You'll talk with founders, you'll talk with people and say, that's great, but why can't you think 10 times bigger? Or like you're hearing that, you know, the, the world wants you to be smaller, but I want you to be bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll kind of prompt people to think in that way. I think of you as almost the antidote to what the Australians would call tall, tall poppy syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Am I kind of missing any nuance in that distillation? No, I think I think what's interesting is like, you know, everyone gets energy in different ways. And so one of the ways that I get energy is like absolutely to I think, you know, this this encouragement mentality is like something that I love amping up what people can achieve. And I think that, you know, sort of if I think about a place that I want to be remembered as is like I definitely want to be in a place where I can, you know, be known as like that's how I scale myself really is like is is through this. I feel like that's a really powerful place that I can play a role in. And that's that's kind of what it also draws me to activities like, you know, angel investing and, and doing that globally. Who are people that you would consider your heroes? So I think I think there's there's heroes in a number of uh, number of dimensions. Like one is, you know, so like I have a lot of uh, a lot of admiration for people that can speak their mind and necessarily detach themselves from uh, traditional like modes of thinking. So, for example, one area is in you know in film. Uh, in so one of my heroes is I think who, a guy who's the most creative man alive is a guy called Alejandro Jodorowsky, who is a he's a surrealist um, filmmaker. He's originally Chilean, and he made a number of movies that basically you know, they don't fall into any category or context. They're really expressions of how he has lived his life, um, like the Holy Mountain, which was kind of banned in a lot of countries. And, you know, he's just a lot of his work, his interviews are absolutely hilarious because, so I think like he's he's someone because I think like surrealist directors, they don't flow with the tide of, you know, kind of convention. They have to really kind of root from from conviction. So he's a hero. From a, from a thinking perspective, you know, at least from an independent thinking perspective, a lot of the sort of thoughts that Peter Thiel has put out there around how do you build monopolies, how do you kind of think differently. I think other people that are sort of irreverent are people that I've worked with, people like Paul Graham, just like totally a hero, like almost like a guru. <laughs> you always, you know, recently recently reconnected with him and, and went to see him and, 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 and kind of you know, he, he has just such an independent point of view. And I think he spent so much time, you know, building out sort of his thoughts around things. And he really just like doesn't care. And I think that like, you know, in this world of noise, like having independence is something that is, that is really, um, really important. And so I admire a lot of people who, who can think independently and kind of express themselves. Got it. What about in this in the in the vein of people that kind of give give the gift of ambition? Or actually, maybe let me take a di- slightly different tack on that. You described uh, Chinese ambition as kind of uh, uh, or the Chinese startup culture as bashful ambition, which has created you know really really high growth and, and high value uh, startups. I, I would assume that there's kind of a, a you know framing of that in difference to what you see in the U.S., which is maybe a different form of ambition. And then certainly in, in areas like the UK or France, where you and I have, have spent time working, so we see that very kind of directly, where it's really more of like a dampening of ambition or more of a conservatism. And I think I see the same thing in Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia, et cetera. Yeah. Africa is still a, a bit of a wild card for me in this. Um, I, think it, I think it actually does some flavors of both. Mm-hmm. How would you describe kind of what bashful ambition is and what it is in difference to 
conservatism and kind of dampening of ambition and then what the U.S. culture of ambition is separate to that? Yeah, so I think, I think bashful ambition is really like, you know, it's like 10x everything. I think it's like, and, and without questioning, it's starting, starting from a base of like, first of all, I think that like you have just more clearance to be ambitious once you find some space in China. You know, you've got, you've got so many more cities to go acquire users in. Like, so, so, I mean, you know, first of all, like you can be bashfully ambitious without dampening it because you have literally no limitations on your thinking. It's almost like a, th- a type of abundance of like, okay, great. We can, we can scale to, you know, a hundred million users like really, really quickly. What's interesting is that this kind of bashful ambition is now taking hold in India because, you know, you have enough role models to go like, to go achieve that. So now startups are like bashfully, as bashfully ambitious as they were. And also like we see the same thing in Latin America with like role models like Rappi who scaled across, you know, many major countries as well as cities. Like you get founders just like now having that level of kind of optimism. I would characterize the the sort of the Chinese thing as like it's just 10x bigger than the US in terms of like what people expect to be able to achieve and talking to Chinese investors and talking to Chinese entrepreneurs, it's like, there's this like, almost like, wow, what are we holding back here? Um, I think the US thing, you know, if we take Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley has ambition, but sometimes Silicon Valley ambition can be a little bit fake in terms of not everything actually legitimately should be a billion dollar company, but everyone's building a billion dollar company. So I think that there's also like some checking of your ambition. You know, if you've got something good going, like there's a, there's a sort of modesty if you have something good going and there's a little bit of uncertainty, but once you are sure it's working, you really do feel that people can scale things. And I think that's, that's different. It's like, whereas, you know, my understanding is that you can't start with modesty in China because you'll be laughed at because everything's just so big anyway. And so everything is scaled up 10x proportionally. Got it. Well, I think there's going to be a rich vein of stuff to explore there. Maybe we should zoom back and orient the listener here around what the concept of kind of companies we're talking about. So ambition to create a very, very large company, yeah. often you know, a, a first order derivative of creating a lot of value in culture, inventing the or all of the kind of techno optimistic stuff you know we, we talk about. Yeah. You've kind of coined this term of a national empire. Yeah. What does that mean? What are the companies that you're looking for? What are some examples? Yeah. So I mean um, the canonical example of a national empire is Alibaba. And Alibaba basically had sort of two components to it. One, you know, there was sort of a historical shift in internet access in China. So as the you know Chinese middle class came online, you know, they like that is that was a key driver of sort of GDP growth. And so really like how do you facilitate so it's kind of a once in a moment in history opportunity to create something for a whole population that is like emerging for the first time. And so you know national empires companies take advantage of that. So Alibaba, you know, obviously had to fight a little bit, but eventually was able to build a sort of de facto monopoly on its relationship to the Chinese consumer and their relationship to, um, and there's a number of companies, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. These are companies that took advantage of sort of a, um, a, a seminal change in, in, you know, cultural access to technology. 
and a moment in history. So that's kind of one characteristic. And the second thing is that these national empires companies are typically led by someone who is building an empire for the, you know, very much like almost a, a, a nationalistic pride. You know, it's so like we want China to be as good as the US and, you know, I've been influenced by the US and we really want to build companies like that here in China. And so Jack Ma was really sort of a poster child as well as a, an evangelist for this way of thinking. And, you know, he was able to sort of use that level of evangelism to, you know, essentially monopolize talent as well as access to a market and, you know, build a whole set of products to build a conglomerate. I think that, like, if we look in history, like, really successful companies that are defaults, they get created once in the, in the history of a country. You know, we look at Samsung. Samsung is a na- sort of a national jewel of, of Korea. Imagine investing in Samsung when it started, or LG, or, you know, Siemens in, in, in Germany. You know, like, even Facebook in, in the U.S., like, really, like, these are, these are the kinds of companies that become defaults can sort of get to, you know, tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of market cap and, you know, start with a de facto national monopoly as their entry point into being um, and and really have a lot of space to to build a a gigantic business that employs hundreds and thousands of people as well as, you know, can generate, you know, billions of dollars of free cash flow every single year. That that kind of blue ocean space feels like an important part of the equation for a national monopoly. The other part of it, yeah. uh, so you know, you don't have to compete with anyone because the the world is your oyster. There's a hundred things you can do. The question is, how many of them can you do and how quickly? Mm-hmm. The other thing that feels kind of unique about that is the pride and support that comes from the general citizenry around you, like this idea of you becoming a, a crown jewel. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. what is the U.S. version of a kind of, you know, national empire? Is it is it the fan companies? Is it, you know, Facebook or Google or Apple or these kind of things? Or or did that moment in time happen kind of earlier in our history and it's actually not around internet that the national monopolies in the US existed? I think what's, if we, th- if we think of, say, like the history of Apple, uh, like, you know, if we think of the history of computing, I think that there was a very unique moment of, you know, e- Earlier than Apple, like if you look at like what was happening in Cambridge in the UK, like there were companies like, um, you know, Acorn and like, you know, there were, there were like Spectrum and, you know, sort of like Sinclair computer, like, you know, there, there were companies that were definitely sort of taking advantage of, you know, national pride and talent to, to be a pioneer in something. And I think that what happened in the US is that, yeah, there was a rare moment where around, you know, the culture around supporting those types of companies, as well as the ambition, like, you know, there are very few people doing those things. And it, it really felt like there was a community of, of entrepreneurs. I think it's like the FANG when they started. That's like, you know, no one can replicate like the Peter Thiel moment with Facebook. No one can replicate, you know, kind of Steve Jobs getting a 100K check from Mike Markula, like in Cupertino. Like those are the kinds of like inception you know, moments or Andy Bechtelstein giving Google money and actually believing that it can be more than like a, you know, those were moments of sort of, you know, unique timing and sort of internet history, opportunities to sort of pioneer something. And, you know, they were 
Google, you know, they were all building something for the world, but starting with like the US being culturally um, more attuned to it. And, you know, they did take advantage of, you know, certain monopolies of talent and, 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 and capital in order to sort of get to their stages. So yeah, those are all sort of Cambrian explosion moments for, for technology. And like, you know, I think that there are other spaces in the US where that's happening. Like, for example, we don't see, we take synthetic biology, for example, like, you know, company like Ginkgo Bioworks or Ligos or any of those companies, I don't think there's any other culture in the world around, you know, academic synthetic biology. Academic synthetic biology is probably more advanced in the US than it is in China right now. And so that's an example of like, that's an industry where you have really great companies coming out of the US that are national flag bearers. And so I think it really depends upon, yeah, that moment in history, that inception uh, of creation but this is happening in many other sectors all around the world. So, I love that idea of trying to find a Cambrian explosion moment. And I think that, you know, just in a cursory look back at American history, I think you can say the 1880s around railroads and oil certainly was, a, was one of those moments. Mm-hmm. You can say the birth of Ford or GE or, or certainly the automobile explosion in general, another, another moment. I love this idea of there being an emerging moment in the U.S. around synthetic biology. And the naysayer case for this would be that from a regulatory standpoint, we are hamstringing research and therefore it's going to go to China or somewhere else where there's fewer regulatory barriers. How do you think that works? That's super, that's super interesting in that. So I, I, um, I made an investment. So this moments in time concept is very, very important. So for example, like for something to be possible in technology right now, like you need to have the right sort of macro trend ingredients. It needs to be the right technological moment for something like that to exist. And it also needs to be the right cultural moment for it to be propagated. So if you have regulatory, like healthcare is a really interesting example in that I believe the most interesting healthcare investments will be made outside of the US because once you remove the, the regulatory barriers, you actually have a lot of technological moments that are here today. And I'll, I've got an example of an investment that I made, which is exactly for that reason. So in India, I funded a company called Inito. Inito is the square of healthcare. Basically, they have a uh, device that you can attach to your phone, which um, is an optical sensor that can detect any, you know, like they basically have a, a test strip, which has antibodies that bind to, you know, any kind of liquid or any fluid. And it basically gives you a, a near time readout of what that is. Their first place of application is in fertility. So, you know, women who are um, trying to determine with high accuracy, kind of how fertile they are and when they want wish to conceive, and then if they're pregnant or not. Basically, you can get a near-time readout, which is based upon the actual hormone levels sort of in urine. Um, and But what's interesting about Inito is that this is a generalizable platform where you can detect anything. If you wanted to detect your testosterone, Tyler, or you, you wanted to sort of detect other, um, you know, sort of metabolic traces, that power is completely on the consumer today. And it's because of like India's unique regulatory environment that they're able to bring hardware, software, and machine learning algorithms that give this power to the consumer out into the market today. And, you know, to get FDA clearance for something like this, that takes like 12 to 18 months. So automatically by launching something to the Indian population, they have the biggest fertility readings database 
in the world, you know, 100,000 plus tests going on. They have the best machine learning model to predict at a population level, you know, what those readings mean. And they're launching like new tests directly to the consumer. You have this like tricorder direct to consumer healthcare phenomenon that's happening today, 2019 in, you know, a country that has looser regulations. And like, you know, they'll go to Asia first before they come to the US. But this is an example of like, you know, machine learning is sort of at the right moment to, to, to be applied, you know, like the miniaturization of sensors and the ability to sort of build powerful, you know, computer vision algorithms that can read off the test strip means that you can create a low cost device for the mobile phone. That's all happening today. So the tech technologically it's possible regulatory sense, you know, we can't do it here in the, in, in the U S and I think there was an example of a company that raised money for it, but the market timing wasn't correct in the U.S. And that's an example of something that, you know, hits that point of a, of a Cambrian moment. Let's kind of use that as a, as a way back into this idea of being a global citizen and what the differences are. So you were, uh, you were born in the U.K., correct? Yeah, I was born in the U.K. So, so born in the U.K., um, you did the, the kind of early part of your career, kind of, I, I would call it, uh, well, the first year or two in the UK, and then the the early part after that, the establishment part in Silicon Valley as part of YC and this first company, and then quit, and then you know, kind of continuing on from there. Mm-hmm. And now you you embody this kind of global citizenship, and we'll yep. explore that in in you know in a fair amount of detail. But I'm curious, what are the things that you think that the U.S. culture of innovation gets wrong today? Like, where are there areas where the U.S. should be learning something new from? what's happening in India or what's happening in China that they can employ accurately or effectively. That's not just, you know, cargo culting what works somewhere else and doesn't work here, but what is kind of missing from the U S ecosystem today? So I think, I think traditionally the Valley has been very reactionary to trends. So whether it's like no code workflows or, you know, SaaS or, you know, there's, there's always a bandwagon to, to hitch onto. And I think that actually the U.S. needs to learn about originality. I think one thing that I find in Latin American or Indian or Southeast Asian entrepreneurs is this rich culture of originality, like this rich culture of like thinking from first principles. So at first glance, ClearTax seems like it's, you know, the TurboTax of India, but TurboTax like doesn't happen in real time. TurboTax is really like a singular product. You know, like the opportunity to reinvent the system and be completely original is something that I find that entrepreneurs outside of the US find really easy to do. And I think part of that is being detached really from a bandwagon. You know, they really have to forge a trail for themselves and they have clear blue ocean to monopolize for themselves. So the, the, the type of thinking is very much more oriented around originality versus hitching to a bandwagon. Now, I know you're kind of a fan of, of Teal's thinking and his counterpoint to that, if I'm you know, able to, uh, to articulate it appropriately, would be that the US has a history of going from zero to one and that most of the things we see in a global dynamic are taking stuff that was invented here and tailoring it to a local market. I think we're reversing that trend. I think we're actually we're seeing more zero to one happen outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. itself. And I think that means that the U.S. is less and less attractive 
as a place to invest. There's just more, there's just too much competition. Say more. I think there's a point at which, so let's take the early days of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Let's take like 2007 to 2012, which I would say was kind of like a real golden period. There's this moment where like you're the only people that can do something about the state of the world and, you know, building stuff. There's a lot more camaraderie. There's a lot less competition. There's a lot more exchange of information. There was a lot more free flow of, um, you know, free flow. Like there's a lot more friendliness and less kind of adversarial or hierarchical dynamics going on. And I think we see the same phenomenon in the early stages of the blue ocean where there is this concept of abundance culturally. You know, it's like, you know that you and your friend are probably like the only entrepreneurs that are attempting to build something at a billion dollar scale. And so therefore there's a lot more camaraderie at that level. And I think there's something about like looking over your shoulder and realizing that there's like a lot more people doing this, which makes it feel mundane or makes it feel like it's run of the mill. And I think it's like losing that spark around the specialness of building something big that is that that feels you know that's the thing that feels off in the u.s right now why do you think it's important that it feels special for founders you you're putting your life force into something and you know in 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 general if 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 i tell you hey tyler you're onto something and there's not a lot of people doing this and you know we're in this boat together that's the psychological moment that like compounds And I think that's the encouragement effect that we talked about before. It's like, you know, I think the same thing is happening in sort of micro geographies. And, you know, you, you see this being outside of, you know, you, you're working, you're currently in, 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 in Boulder. And, you know, there's a, there's a special moment where there's not many of you building companies and it feels, you know, so if you, if you simply humans, humans are really influenced um, by their sort of immediate, psychological um, environment. And I think that when you get really dense startup cities, like too dense, like you kind of, it gets claustrophobic. And that's kind of how I was feeling um, in 2017 in San Francisco. I didn't feel like I could think. (laughs) And, you know, it was an impetus to, it's kind of like why I like being in New York. It's kind of like why I like, I I want to think location agnostically about what what I'm working on. Because, you know, I think that there's something around, it's really easy to listen to everything around you. And if you kind of can isolate yourself from that, it it creates a very different set of psychological conditions around building something. I like that. And I can certainly see parts of that uh, in in my own experience. I think the, maybe the popular counter argument to this, and so I'd be curious your, your, your defense in light of, would be that it's actually the, that the really dense cities do still have a lot of zero to one happening, but that there's just so many more things that the noise kind of drowns out the signal, but that on par, there's still more innovation happening there than anywhere else. It's kind of a, you know, if only 1% of startups are innovative, then you increase the number, the noise gets overwhelming, but the signal keeps growing. Is that a fair reading? Do you think that's correct? Do you think that's wrong for some reason? So I think, I think this is like, it's kind of what happens if, you know, like, if you have a Petri dish and you grow bacteria, like there's basically a death curve that happens. So at some point, like there's exponential growth until it plateaus 
And then basically like the growth will slow down until like the whole populate, like, you know, all of the debris. I would say that at, at some point, these startup cities become so saturated that they actually become inhospitable. And that actually lead, will lead to sort of the decline or slowdown of the number of signal generating events. Whereas actually like most other ecosystems are in kind of the exponential phase of that, you know, that, that S curve. And I think that what that means is that there's a purity. So it's not that we're saying that innovation isn't happening everywhere, but I think that other places are in more in that exponential phase than, um, you know, existing ecosystems are. And that just makes them more interesting. That just makes them more interesting. There's a very interesting kind of idea on this, which is that Silicon Valley, the history of Silicon Valley is one where the, the edges have been kind of brought into the, to the centrality very quickly. Yeah. So if you can innovate on the edges, you are, you know, iconoclastic and weird and thought poorly of, and then you succeed and you are instantly brought into the center of the fold. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious about a couple of things on this. I love this idea of kind of a, you know, a death curve, right? Where the, the Petri dish that you are in becomes inhospitable to the new entrant. And so I'm curious, like certainly if you're, you know, Peter Thiel or your center of the network already, you know, the, you are unlikely to, you know, to fold under the, the, you know, the call it acidity of the environment as it slightly turns, mm-hmm. but the new entrant is far more at risk for reacting to that, right? They're, they're far more dependent on their environment. So I'm curious, you know, so it sounds like you believe that, you know, San Francisco is in some sort of a plateau on this point. Maybe they're starting to curve down. Certainly the ecosystem has not died there. So it's not the end of that curve. What is the kind of actual function for the new entrant? Is it that they won't come to San Francisco? Is it that the people who are in San Francisco will leave? Is it that people are... Yeah, I believe that there's going to be an unbundling of San Francisco. And an unbundling of San Francisco means, you know, like the last remaining strand of unbundling is the movement of sophisticated capital outside of San Francisco. So it's still, San Francisco is known as the place where you go to get funded. (laughs) And everyone will make a pilgrimage to San Francisco on that route to getting funded. And now it's even more common to go from your startup city to San Francisco and back in order to go get that money. And so I think that if you can like unbundle like some of the features of San Francisco, like for example, if sophisticated capital did not require, had a location-based component and was available in abundance. So this is kind of like, you know, you can say to some extent local startup ecosystems are that. Let's say that we have perfect local startup ecosystems. You still got companies from India flying to San Francisco, doing Y Combinator, raising seed money, because there's something different about the flavor of capital that they can get. Mm. So I think that in order to, you know, and we also also like, San Francisco is unbundling a number of ways. One is like people are choosing quality of life elsewhere with the capital of San Francisco. So that's kind of like, that's one, 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 one area of unbundling. The second area of unbundling is like that you can get the talent that you need elsewhere of the same quality, but like lower cost. And so that's like the second type of unbundling. The third type of unbundling will truly be like, can you get the level of sophisticated support and the level of sophisticated capital, and maybe it tops up on local capital, but it's exported from San Francisco to the, you know, to where you are, 
I think like then you'll start to see like less of a dependence upon San Francisco as an ecosystem. If it's equivalent from a career perspective to be, you know, so as we get into remote work, we'll get into like the, the, the sort of mobility of moving from one remote company to another. Then it doesn't matter if you live in Mexico, you're still working on a San Francisco idea, but you happen to be like living somewhere else in the world. So I think like if we can unbundle San Francisco, the, the security of San Francisco, the fact is that like, you know, if you're, if you're part of the YC network, you will always have opportunities, whether it's starting a new company or joining an existing company. As YC's network becomes more global, as it saturates more and more, geogra- more and more geographic nodes around the world, as it starts to interview companies in other geographies, most of YC's batch is going to be international. And most of YC is going to come to California in order to like pay pilgrimage to San Francisco and then export that energy like out. So I think that like the more and more this unbundling happens, the less location dependency that we have. And then the final, yeah, the final frontier is basically sophisticated capital, sophisticated encouragement and sophisticated kind of almost like, how do you have a, a protected downside? You know, that was the big thing about the SF ecosystem. Like your company fails, you could get acquired by someone else. You'll have a job in like days. And that fluidity and that downside protection is, if that can be unbundled, then we have something that can be truly doesn't need a location. I love it. You know, one of the things that I see from, I've done a lot of work in local communities, uh, both internationally and uh, you know, Colorado and such. And one of the things that I think people assume is that you build these communities from a germline, right? Like you start with sophisticated local seed capital, and then you kind of grow up over time. Yeah. What I've actually seen is that it's, it's generally the inverse. Sometimes there is a, there is a, you know, seed, a seed investor who's quite good, who kind of you know, helps move the market. You know, I think the family in France, or um, I think you've seen a, you know, a couple in, in the UK. And sometimes that does happen, but it seems much more rare. It seems more like the sophisticated capital is generally a, you get big enough to where a traditional sophisticated capital player comes in and invests. And then that creates the kind of role models and network centrality and such for for the ecosystem more broadly. And it, it slowly moves down to, oftentimes executives at that first successful company becoming angel investors or small investors. Mm-hmm. When I think about the the kind of the narrative that we used to use about Silicon Valley, it's that it was the only place that you could find executives that could help you scale the business. Um, and that that was the really important export. Mm-hmm. I think it's been proven that that is not the case now. You know, obviously, Alibaba's executives were not, uh, you know, imported from San Francisco. So I think it's it's been proven that you can find mm-hmm. They were, they were influenced by the U.S., though. And I think that there is, you know, if we look at, like, a lot of Archit from ClearTax, CEO of ClearTax, he, he was an engineer at a company that IPO'd in San Francisco, and he went back to India. He had to go back to India. So, like, there is something around this exporting of a set of, you know, unbundled um, characteristics, sophistication, ambition, operating capability. And I think that, like, the unbundling will accelerate with changes in how information gets transmitted as well as how work gets done. You know, you can have a company in Bangalore that runs off the same OKR system that Lattice has and they can use Lattice. And like, so there's something around like unbundling operating knowledge, capability and encouragement and capital, which can like actually scale 
in the same way that we're saying, like, you know, it doesn't matter where, like, Lambda School can scale everywhere because, like, there is no location dependence to their ability to serve students. The same thing can be true of, like, well, what if we took an ecosystem and we unbundled it, you know, with all of the internet-enabled components that exist today, what could you do to the world? It's clearly better to live in lots of other places than it is in one place. So I think that there's something interesting there. Yeah, there's, there's two things I want to hit on that. And one is, one is, I think, the easier one or the faster one, which is, are founders the compressed file version of that? Like, is basically, you talk about founders having Silicon Valley experience and then going into a new ecosystem. Is, is you know, San Francisco functionally grad school for for founders and they're coming in and kind of becoming the germline for building the local ecosystems. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's the first part, but then those founders still always come back to San Francisco to get capital. So if you can unbundle capital Mm -hmm. together with, you know, and, and this is capital that doesn't follow. This is capital that believes this is capital that like sets the tone and generates the signal for an ecosystem. Like that still is incredibly rare. Like someone who will write you $1.5 million of your $2 million round before you have all of the hallmarks of traction. We still find that, like, for example, in India, the funding ecosystem is still very much like because it's they can pick from the best, people wait. And that typically happens in ecosystems where there's less competition or there's like it's culturally not okay to have so much conviction. And so like... This conviction-driven investing that we see in the U.S. is something that's still very rare and something that has not been fully unbundled to the way, in a way that there is a vacuum of demand for it. And so this is something that I believe, something that I'm working on, is like how do you actually unbundle that and take this, cap, this form of investing into other geographies without necessarily having a, a geographic footprint in those geographies? How do you do that? Well, I think the first the first sort of layer is I think let's take like how did Ron Conway become embedded in Silicon Valley? Like he had a lot of good karma spread through hundreds of founder interactions. So the first stage is like you become a minority investor with some flagship investments in those countries because you're actually building a geographic seed in those geographies, and then you ratchet up your ability to invest more and more and start to cultivate a number of things. One is like a narrative around what it means to be an elite founder building a great company around your community. But there's like a set of operating principles that you propagate through that geography, through your founders, which then creates a magnet for other people to want to join that. And then you start ratcheting up your ability to then influence and generate signal in those rounds. And then you actually like building a pan-global presence without actually being geographically present in those geographies. Got it. You know, I feel like that conviction-oriented capital is rare even in the U.S., and then it's extraordinarily rare everywhere else. You know, that you might find one or two in a country. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think think it's, um, I think there's a certain bravery. Like, the point is that, you know, when you're investing in two people with an idea, like, to a lot of people, there's not a lot of data there. (laughs) <laughs> but actually like there is a lot of data there's like the psychology of, of 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 those founders and what they've been through what does this moment mean for them in time there's also some like you know quality understanding of what makes a great idea and what has market timing like right now 
And so there's actually like a lot of signal in early. So it's like really the asymmetry between seeing something as like having no information and seeing something as having a lot of information. That is the difference between conviction-driven investors and, 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 and those that are not. And I think at the earliest stages, really like, you know, you're funding the pivot, you're funding the, like, you know, the, the moment in time for those individuals starting that company. You're funding the certainty that they have the right amount of taste around what they're building. Um, and then you also like, you are to some extent also betting on your conviction for how things will unfold if that product or service gets built. And I think that those are like, those are subjective things and things that require taste. And, you know, taste is definitely not spread equally across the world. Yeah. I can see how if your mission in life was, you know, at least for this period of time, was to become the exporter of conviction capital to the rest of the world. Yeah. I could see how, you know, with, you know, a billion or $10 billion under management, you could do that. And I know what that playbook would look like. I think it's, it's, there's execution risk, but there's not, you know, capital risk. Yeah. When you talk about, you know, but you don't have, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy at this exact moment. Yeah. When you talk about building that up the same way that Ron Conway did, right, with minority positions and then reputation and having building assets that compound. Yeah. What is kind of the first step or two on that journey? I guess maybe you've already done it. So what, have, what, have, what is the first kind of four or five years of your exploration of this theme been? Yeah. So I think, I think the first thing, first thing is like having a seat on the table and having some success. So I think like investing in, you know, companies um, sort of valued, at, you know, between 10 and $15 million at seed. And then now being valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, on a path to a billion dollars, like shows that this playbook of backing national empires works. The second thing is to have, you know, like, so having proven it on a small scale, then more recently, you know, in the last sort of 12 weeks or so, I've actually invested in seven new companies in India, five new companies in Latin America, sort of, I didn't take a meeting with Rappi when I first got there because I underestimated what the value of like a Latin American like company would be. So like I've made mistakes of underestimating things. And also I've had some successes in identifying, you know, companies that have fit that thesis. And so to the point where now I truly passionately empirically believe that this is a really important opportunity. And so I think the first step is like, yeah, I've now got 30 investments across India, Latam, Southeast Asia, and Africa. And um, I think in order of prioritization, like India and Latin America are really having sort of their moment, both in terms of the amount of upstream capital, sort of number of local um, role, you know, sort of role models that exist, um, as well as sort of the, the quality of like the team and ideas that are coming through. So it makes sense right now to be able to scale that strategy. So it's all about market timing. Market timing has never been better um, in terms of identifying the number of like new entrants into the sort of unicorn club that exist outside of the US than now. And it's really like we're we're in a moment in history where it makes sense to go do that. So I think it's really just as with any entrepreneurial endeavor, like is the right market timing now? And then have you proven an MVP that shows that you have some taste around it? And then like, can you then take those results and go institutionalize like that. That's basically kind of, you know, what's happened to date. 
Do you think that you can do this as a as kind of a single person or what's required to scale this? I mean, tackling this in even five countries alone would strike me as difficult. Well, I think I think what's important is that the question is like, how do you build a distributed organization? So I think that there are some important components of this. You definitely do need to have people on the ground. Now, those people on the ground could be the, the people that you invest in. Because you know, even right now, like my WhatsApp has all of the local insights on what's going on. If I catch up with you know <laughs> the sort of twenty or so founders, like I do have a pulse on like what's going on globally, who's investing, which is local market context, and it's cheaper than ever to get local market context, um, you know, sort of asynchronously as possible. I do think, you know, I think it's important to also travel. Like we do exist in times where you know flowing through. Latin America or flowing through India or flowing through Southeast Asia, um, you know, is something, and I'm definitely used to traveling. Like even this year, <laughs> I've been, you know, probably taken about sort of 20 or 30 different flights. Like I don't really, you know, traveling is a mindset that has to come naturally too. So I think that there's time to refresh those in-person connections and start doing that work. But I do think that like, I think that media is a really important part. So, you know, I think that a lot of the conversations I have with these founders should be exposed to a much wider audience and creating media around that is kind of one way of, of connecting to a much wider audience. So, so for example, like take Harry Stebbings, for example, like his ability to build connections with almost every major VC in the world came from a bedroom in London. And I think that even, you know, more and more these days, the ability to connect globally is happening because of online technologies. You know, it's easy to get on a Zoom, do an interview, create some value even without being in the local ecosystem and then connecting people is and creating the same sort of karmic energy that Ron Conway did is really about like how all of the participants that you're interacting with, how are you interfacing with them and how are you allowing them to interface with each other? How do you create value by connecting a CEO in Latin America with a CEO in India or a product manager in Silicon Valley with like a company in Indonesia to go through that, that, you know, sort of onboarding funnel. Like I think that there's ways of creating like the same kinds of ecosystem value that you do in person, online, through content and through connection. That and then I think that there is an in-person component that's required that can that needs to happen to refresh those relationships. But I think it's definitely feasible today to build a pan-global presence uh, more than ever. Got it. Let's use that as a way to to jump into some of the things you're doing now that you're spending a lot more kind of active energy and time on this. And I noticed that you're starting kind of a, a sub stack on this. What is, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, that, that endeavor, because that feels like the first germ of this, uh, this work. Yeah. So I think, I think first of all, there's something about translating and correlating insights across borders, which doesn't necessarily happen. So typically like a lot of things that are written about China, a lot of things that are written about India, a lot of things that are written about Latin America are written in the context of, um, you know, those, those continents or those countries like alone. And so the first thing that I, that I want to do is, 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 is write in a very cross border context in a, you know, like imagine if like there was a cross border strat like that's like the kind of writing that that i want to put together and those are a lot of the insights that i want to start propagating both as a way of me making sure that i you know cover all of my bases in terms of what i know but also like it's really interesting to be able to know you know there's you know if, if, if you're like i funded an online insurance broker in mexico and the point is that like 
online insurance brokers have contacts in the US, in the UK, in China. Like, you know, like there's, there's a huge, if you, there's always a comparison that you can make and there's always like a, it's something that you can learn by comparing things in a cross-border way. So my newsletter, Medici Global Insights on Substack, um, is something that aims to, you know, really could kind of propagate and, 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 and construct that cross-border opinion. And also like illuminate this idea that the next sort of decacorns are going to come from India, Indonesia, Latin America, Africa, um, and really like make that available to, to an audience that is curious about it, but doesn't necessarily understand it. So I think like that's the, that's the sort of first place that builds a community. And I think there's a number of things that you can do with, with a community. I've talked to a number of companies that I've invested in, and they're really interested in this concept of export. Like, how do you export talent from some of these geographies into their geographies? So how do you find all of the Indian engineers that five years later in Silicon Valley want to go and join, like, a top Indian startup? Or Latin Americans who want to move from, like, the UK back to, like, you know, South America to go join, like, the next Rappi? Like, I think that there's these kinds of career opportunities that, that exist. And so being a conduit for that both helps like portfolio companies as well as allows a community to become active. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, I think these are, these are important components of that effort. I really like that idea. Do you think that this is, so there is unorganizing principle around geography, right? Building the national empire. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are other organizing principles where, you know, you have the same type of pull or, gravity here like is there is there another reason that really talented uh mid-career engineers might leave facebook or google to go to a different company um around something that is not you know geographic or identity oriented i mean most of the reasons why people leave is like meaning or upside or the ability to learn on something um you know going home happens to be a really strong version of that (laughs) i think a lot of people left home and like they're kind of coming back home and realizing that they can have all of the spoils and sophistication that they exhibited in one place back home. And I think that that's, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's like, it's like we've globalized the world. We're going to sort of re-domesticate like the world. So if you're from Boulder and you move to Silicon Valley, you can come back to Boulder and start a company. You're <laughs> an executive at Dropbox and like a startup has basically, you know, offered you a position. And the difference between the startup and Dropbox is that startup lets you live anywhere, which means that you can go live in Utah. Like these are realistic, real examples of like people moving for quality of life reasons while maintaining the same sophistication of career or trajectory. I think that's a really good intersection. I like that a lot. I think the, um, I misspoke there where I think it's, it's, uh, it's the idea of what is the identity pull that allows you to say, if I can maintain all of these things that I move for, I will move back. Yeah. And so certainly going home does seem like maybe the strongest I can think of there. And there's a super interesting thread into remote and quality of life. So maybe it's not the idea of going home, but going to independence and autonomy in some other way. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting there is like, I think there's this notion, like the American dream was, you know, you sort of come to the States, you get rich and then you get your like, you get your like three bedroom house with a garden, you know, and a dog and your family. And that's like, you have everything that you need to be self-sufficient and live for the rest of your life. And then you retire. And 
that is happening earlier and earlier in people's lives. So if we take sort of fund, you know, like housing costs going ballistic in cities, you know, like uh, culture actually like being propagated to lots of places where actually quality of life and and career opportunities becoming sort of unbundled from location. Like we're going to see just opportunities to live in a lot more places in our lifetime and also get everything that we wanted out of life much, much earlier. So there's this notion of unbundling the American dream and propagating it across the planet, which is like an engineer in Bangalore can live the American dream and like (laughs) build a startup and like go build a great life and then go retire to Sri Lanka if they wanted to. Like that's something that can happen faster and faster than ever. So I think like the time to the 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 moment of the American dream globally is going to come down, and I think that that's a really interesting unbundling of life. Very much so. Very much so. And I see that very actively. I'm curious. Let me let me zoom up a little bit here. I love the stuff that you're talking about of the kind of services that you can provide, right? So it's, it's identifying some of the people that might be good conversations to have. It's uh, acting as convicted capital. It's getting global market insights. All these things that you've talked about, I think are truly things that you could do from a, a bedroom in London to use the, the stabbings example, or that you could do from a plane with WhatsApp. I'm curious if you were to think about, and feel free to take you know a moment or two to think about this if you need to, if you were to think about designing an API for what Suman does, mm-hmm. what would be the kind of calls that exist in that? Like if I were a founder in Indonesia getting excited about this, what would I call the Suman API for? So encouragement, probably one. You know, I think like strategic foresight is another. Connections is another thing. Capital, you know, initially minority, but over time could be could be majority and supportive throughout like the round. So capital can come in two forms. One is like direct and one is like, let me actually like cross sell your opportunity to other investors who are synergistic and act as that signal. So that's, that's kind of, that's, that's, that's one thing. I think those are sort of the, 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 the main things is that I think if you have encouragement, which is kind of psychological support connections, which kind of amplifies, um, you know, advice and input like foresight, because it's not, all going to be about operations. I think there's also something around like downside protection or almost like if stuff goes wrong, like what can we do together? It's like, if I can give you downside protection and maximize your upside, then you probably want to be in business with me. So what do you think is missing from that API? Like what do you hope is in that answer 10 years from now? Well, I think there's something about also being physically present, which is interesting. There are things that can be done physically and on the ground, which need to be scaled with a team, for sure. I think if I think about, I think about like next generation, like platforms, almost like things which are powerful are almost like acts of God. So you're like, you know, I wish I had like two senior engineers, like available tomorrow, you know, who with this caliber of experience, you're like, here they are. I think we're like going into like the acts of God, like services list. That's the kind of thing that like in 10 years time, that's where you really move the needle. You're like truly a catalyst to your companies. Like you get them bought, you get them sold, you give them customers, you give them team. You're really critical in terms of like shaping, like, you know, where they are. Like you're literally in God mode for venture. And I think that like, there's a level of like, 
how do you become a global catalyst, like a global economic catalyst? Like you're both involved on the entry of these companies and the exit of these companies, and you can like influence the whole chain. I think that that essentially that creates economic value for all of your participants and also recycles the talent that gets created into like new ventures. So I think that there's like, I think incubation needs to be a part of it. I think like incubating people, I think, you know, reorganizing people as participants in that system, truly having a true ecosystem from like entry to IPO and every stage like being covered of all operations. I think there's something about God mode that's like part of that. I love this idea of acts of God. You've mentioned Ron Conway as kind of a philosophical uh, ancestor on this approach. Yeah. Like Ron, Ron was, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything untoward here. Like people have strong feelings about Ron, like people yeah. love him or hate him. Yeah. Yet the people who love. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of people that hate him. I think anyone that's truly been in business with Ron Conway has felt he was I invested in URX with, with, with Ron and like Ron was a very critical catalyst of the relationship between John, the CEO of URX and Ben, the founder of Pinterest. And that was a moment that was very critical to like the sort of life or death of the company. And obviously that team went on, built the knowledge graph at Pinterest and like, you know, went on to be very successful for Pinterest and like, but that without the Ron Conway catalyst, like there wouldn't have been that level of, Report and that is like an act of you know that is kind of God mode. He was able to whisper in Ben's ear and he was able to whisper in John's ear and like that was a very critical moment. And I you know like there have been many moments where Ronco has been able to get companies funded. Ronco has been able to get companies bought, and but he's always done the right thing for the founder. And like those are the kinds of things that propagate amongst hundreds of humans, which maintain like that level of status. Same thing for Paul Graham. Paul Graham has been like. You know, he's really like created lives. <laughs> you know, I, it's actually Paul Graham, I think, is the is maybe even the easier version of this to look at. But and this is this is a bit where I was going with, with Ron Conway. Paul and Jessica. To be honest, it's Paul and Jessica. It's not just Paul Graham. Like that's you know, true. Jessica's part of this too. That's very true. And I think actually the, the one thing I'll notice, I don't know anyone who's worked with Paul who, who has strong negative feelings. I know some that have worked with Ron that have strong negative feelings. I will note though, I think the, the thing that you've talked about with Ron where I was going earlier is that's the closest person I can pattern match to acts of God in my experience, right? Like yeah. I've heard a lot of really big name investors who can't say, Oh, you need help 24 hours from now? Fine, I'll save the company. Mm-hmm. I've heard that dozens of times with Ron. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've also heard that, you know, fairly actively, maybe not quite to the same level of just like raw energy, but I've heard that very actively with Paul. And I think you're exactly right that Jessica is a huge part of that as well. Are those the types of people that you, when you think of, you know, God mode powers, are those the types of people that have God mode powers? Yeah, I think so. I think I think there's a number of reasons for them to have God mode powers. One is like they truly, genuinely are doing things for benevolent reasons. And actually like, you know, in, in these people-driven ecosystems at scale, benevolence does propagate fast. So like, but it only works if you can act at scale. The fact that Paul and Ron are operating at like, hundreds and thousands of founder, like that level of scale with those founders impacting, you know, 20 
to hundreds of people, like means that their scale of influence is in the you know hundreds and thousands to millions, just like online. And then you propagate that off, you know, like the offline. Sorry, and then you propagate that online reputation. So compound, like you multiply your offline scale with like online messaging. That's how you build like a true platform of scaling benevolence in a way that is actually beneficial both to the entrepreneur and to the investor. You know what strikes me out of this is that it requires that scale and network. And it's almost that the network effects are so much more clear. Yes. I talk to a lot of I talk to a lot of like large scale VCs who I think know that their business is a network effects business, that their reputation is actually the primary asset they have. Mm-hmm. But it's so hidden from the day to day that sometimes they forget. Right, they kind of act in a way that ends up, you know, hurting their reputation, yeah. and they don't see the pain of that immediately, and so they don't get course corrected. Yeah, I think that they're not operating at scale. Yeah, I think if you're if you're trying to if you have to convince hundreds of people a year to work with you, your reputation, you're like your learning of what the actual importance of reputation is, is just extraordinarily rapid. Interesting. Yeah, 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 and I think I think that you know what's interesting about YC right now is that every interaction between an investor and a founder is being recorded into Bookface. And that is the first, sort of that glass door of investing is the first thing that's being checked by YC founders. And so even though directly, you know, some investors may not know why their interactions with YC companies are in a certain way, it's like the level of propagation of reputation into the YC ecosystem because of its scale is something that like actually has real compounding network effects for certain investors versus not. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's funny, I was recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very great VC. I would work with them. I like them a ton. I think they're very, very good. And they, they're, you know, one of their partners did something that hurt their reputation. Yeah. And I don't think that's been exposed back to them I don't, I don't think they've learned that lesson yet, right? But I also know that at least three of my friends have said, nope, not going to work with that firm, right? And these are exceptionally high-quality founders of fast-growth companies. Uh-huh. So I think if you see it very rapidly, the feedback cycle gets better. I want to pivot this back to something you're doing now, which is one of the vehicles for scale in what you're doing is not just the founders and the community of founders, but also the teams that those people are building. Yeah. Because if you're building a company in an ecosystem that does not have traditional venture knowledge or traditional technology company knowledge, yeah. then being able to, you know, it's one thing to give the founder permission to have ambition. It's one thing to be a to be a giver of the gift of ambition. But it's another thing to educate a community of local grown executives and independent contributors and talented people mm-hmm. into the idea of what is living a good, well-rounded life as the you know 30th employee at a high-octane company look like. Mm-hmm. And that's something that most communities outside of, outside of the Bay Area don't have. Yep. Have you thought much about kind of how you'll help provide that? Absolutely. So I think, you know, like... Uh, on my next trip to India, I hope to visit a number of the companies that I've invested in that are scaling. And this notion of building, like Alibaba had many entrepreneurs inside of Alibaba, which allowed it to basically scale to the levels and build new businesses inside of Alibaba. You see the same thing with like new companies like Oyo, which is like one of the fastest growing, um, you know, property companies, like prop tech companies in the world. 
you know, they call their entrepreneurs instead of OYO, OYOpreneurs. And so there's this notion of like, you're not just investing in the company to become successful, you're actually investing in the entrepreneurial growth of the ecosystem inside of that. And so if I were able to go into ClearTax, give a talk to ClearTax and encourage the next, you know, ClearTax entrepreneurs to go build something or to Zendit and to, to, to the next uh, sort of Zenditans to go do that, you're actually propagating a whole new level of entrepreneurship. Some of those founders may come out and go found a national empire level company. And so actually like you have this real opportunity for scale. And so that's definitely something that I've thought about and um, would love to do. And that's how you actually truly build like generational impact. It's like, I want to go fund all the entrepreneurs that come out of ClearTax and all the entrepreneurs that come out of Zendit and all the entrepreneurs that come out of like some of my Latin American investments. Just like, if you can build big companies, you're going to generate a lot more entrepreneurs and like you can increase the value of those companies by amplifying entrepreneurship inside and you can increase the entrepreneurship by amplifying entrepreneurship outside. So that's a network effect. As the founder CEO of one of these emerging high growth companies, yeah, how important is it to have entrepreneurs within the culture? I don't think that things can scale unless you're the entrepreneur behind other entrepreneurs. And so almost, you know, like if you take Paytm, for example, you know, there's an interview with Vijay from Paytm. So Paytm is a sort of India's leading payments company. They've actually like built a number of businesses beyond payments. And so, you know, there's an interview with, with Vijay like last week, Vijay Shekhar Sharma from Paytm, and he talks about building the first $100 billion conglomerate in India. And they plan to IPO in the next couple of years. Um, Warren Buffett invested in the, in, the, in the company. Alibaba invested in the company too. But basically, the way that he's scaling is like he's essentially building a whole number of startups inside of Paytm and looking at himself as a, both a capital allocator and a venture investor as you know, sort of the master CEO of this company. And I think that like, Ultimately, if you look at like what the Collison brothers are doing at Stripe, and if you look at like any any kind of great growth company, you have to propagate the entrepreneurs inside of your company, and that's just like a second act once you um, can uncover a large opportunity as a founder. What's an example of a company we all know of that's already massive, that's worked, that just has failed to kind of cultivate the internal entrepreneurship culture as well as norm? Mm. I can think of positive examples and we can kind of contrast from there. So for example, like to some extent, Facebook did really well for a long time in being able to innovate. And then it really required acquisitions to bring in sort of new ideas and new talent. So like, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram are two massive growth areas for Facebook. But what's an internal organic Facebook effort that's going to match like those things? I don't think they're happening anymore. You know, it used to be like newsfeed was launched and like that was led by someone and then someone launched Facebook ads and like, you know, so I think that the like Facebook is somewhat is, is a place where it seems like there's too much authority and there is some rejection of like something that goes against like the leadership. And so controversially, I think that like, yeah, Facebook is struggling with with re-energizing itself. And now it's like it's juicing a bunch of existing properties. I think Google to some extent really has failed at propagating itself. You know, being googly 
used to be about creating Gmail and creating like Google Earth and like, you know, creating Google Docs and these services. But I don't think that there's a culture of that type of entrepreneurship that is propagating right now in its current environment. And so like, that's an example of, you know, a company that it doesn't need to innovate, but if it was able to take its, you know, its its ability to, to create new products. Um, so actually it's funny that like a lot of these are American examples. Whereas if you look at like Alibaba and Tencent and others, like they are constantly reinventing themselves with new entrepreneurial efforts, as well as taking huge positions in, in other new entrants. I don't see Facebook venture investing. Where's Facebook's venture investments? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not cult- it's not cultivating the kind of ecosystem relationships that say its Chinese equivalents are. And even we see new entrants like ByteDance and others really take like corporate development pretty seriously. And so yeah, I think I think that like American companies like Facebook and Google are actually like not having a good time cultivating that entrepreneurial spirit, which is kind of the opposite of what got them going. I think that's right. Facebook and Google were top of my mind when I asked the question. And then you contrast that to things like Stripe and Amazon, which I think have done exceptionally well on that front. Stripe Stripe is really influenced by Chinese um, incumbents. Say more. Stripe is really... I think there's something to Patrick and John not being from the US, which helps them. Obviously, like Larry and Sergey, they're not from the US too, but they're not really in charge of like Google you know, in, in the same way. I think that there's a totally different style of entrepreneurial leadership that they, that they have. But, you know, I, you know, Stripe is, Stripe is investing in, you know, seed series A, series B, Stripe is actively, you know, doing things like, um, you know, the sort of the the carbon sequestration um, effort. You know, that's an example, that's a Google type move of like, let's create a market around carbon sequestration Mainly internet companies do have a big environmental footprint, but it's like he actually did something about it. And, you know, there are teams inside of Stripe going and addressing that. So I think that there's like a much, it feels like there's a totally different culture of innovation. And I feel like new, newer companies have an opportunity to go rekindle like that kind of entrepreneurial, you know, propagating, compounding drive. You know, I feel like Flexport has done a really phenomenal job of, of that Ryan is creating, you know, I think by having a global business and like, you know, I think a big percentage of flex porters who have been there for one to three years are actually moved to new offices to go propagate like the culture. So he's, he's creating something that feels very entrepreneurial, very, um, you know, driven. And also like they're starting to, you know, develop new initiatives outside of the core product. So I think that like there is a new set of companies that are, you know, and Ryan, studied in China and has worked in China. And like, you know, uh, like, I think that like, you know, Patrick is a much more, has a much more global viewpoint that actually like this global viewpoint is what, you know, American CEOs need to adopt in order to actually start to feel that that pulse that, that the Chinese or Indian or Latin American counterparts do. I think you're pretty strongly hinting there that that is that global is, you know, the, the kind of, the nugget that matters, you know, the primitive, the first principle that, that drives that the counter to that would be Amazon where, you know, Jeff is, is kind of American born and bred. And I think has done a good job of this. Amazon's investing like a billion dollars into India. Like Amazon is taking India very, very seriously as a growth path. 
you know, like Amazon almost bought Flipkart, like Walmart took that deal. Like I think Jeff is pretty globally savvy too. And maybe that, you know, I, th- I think that there is, there's something about having that mindset that really keeps you nimble because, you know, like he, they didn't take India the chance. They really just like went, went for it and are trying to, to be a player there. Trust. And, you know, if you, yeah. Contrast that with like Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Larry or Sundar or something. Sundar obviously like has a, has a, has a global viewpoint. And again, is taking sort of India seriously. I think um, Facebook has WhatsApp in India and is taking India pretty seriously too. I think the component that's missing is like Google. I would like to see Facebook venture invest and stuff. I think that if Facebook started, instead of trying to own everything, started to propagate an ecosystem around it, it would feel like it's a much more neutral player that actually believes in like the good of the world versus like trying to further this agenda for how people should socialize. And I think that, it not being nimble enough is essentially what's, you know, like Facebook didn't create musically or it didn't, it didn't create TikTok, you know, like that came out of China that came out of ByteDance and that came out, ByteDance's approach was to be a studio and ByteDance's approach was to go like build multiple things and then like propagate the ones that work. And I think that this approach of like this entrepreneurial studio approach, even at scale, is the thing that I think is a cultural aspect of companies that will continue to, you know, evolve and shift even if they have um, dominant positions. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's almost like the new the new ecosystem. You know, it's like Microsoft had an ecosystem of developers and had an ecosystem of consumers that consumed Microsoft products. So its operating system. There was a notion of an ecosystem. Today, these ecosystems aren't as closely bundled you know they're actually like looser ecosystems of people you've invested in people you've invested in internally initiatives that may fail but could become the next growth trajectory acquisitions that you're going to make there's this different notion of building an ecosystem that continues to propagate innovation in a in a sort of globally networked world that needs to exist got it i think that you are i'm i'm reading that you have a passion for, or at least an appreciation for this concept of bashful ambition that we talked about an hour ago, (laughs) the kind of the Chinese or Indian model. And you talked about kind of some of the things that are required for creating this world of bashful ambition. I think one is just size, right? The ability to, to grow quickly and to feel like there's lots of opportunity in blue ocean. I think you've talked about it being important that there's, you know, not too much competition or the idea that you are that you are one of many cogs going after this this effort mm-hmm. and you talked a bit about the kind of role models that were that were needed to to show okay this is possible what are the other things that go into building a culture of bashful ambition so i think um i think there's something there's something about being able to take personal risk and having downside protection that feels unique so in Silicon Valley, that's the idea that you can start as many companies as possible as long as one of them succeeds eventually and you learn something from each one of them because there's no distinction between like a, pa- a past failure is not a, a, a black mark. Like you need that as a, as a sort of a cultural tenet and there needs to be downside protection. Like you need, I think you need like this notion of unconditional belief. I think this notion of like you're backing people for life, whatever they do. 
and whatever incarnation that they're in. And I think that like, that's very rare. Maybe you have like, this is the, and then the second thing is you need, I think you need to encourage people to take upside for themselves a lot. That is definitely like propagated in the U S but like you know, a lot of these, like kind of a lot of these Indian entrepreneurs, once they become rich, they'll just really be like so grateful for this like opportunity. And they really want to, will want to pay it forward because they came from maybe humble beginnings. And so like, a lot of these cultures, they have your know, first generation like wealth that's being created for the first time. There's some humility around first generation wealth. So it's like, I think that you need a culture of humility because it doesn't matter how like rich you are, you know, you can always rise from like zero to become something. And I think that like, that's a, that's an important cultural trait to propagate. I think if you have downside protection and kind of the ability to be humble and come from zero to something and then pay it forward you'll get and you have like people that embody that message you will get this kind of bashful ambition and then i think you need to encourage people to have originality like there needs to be pride in originality in the renaissance we had pride in originality it wasn't about like did you employ the same technique it's like what did you discover what new ground did you create and i think that like we need to go back to a world i think because of media we're sort of poisoned with so much information that we just like see the same stuff we need to detach our, our, our minds from that fire hose of like mediocrity and kind of like retrace our steps to to find the originality in ourselves you know i like um uh, an acquaintance of mine is this guy named finch who's a street artist and he talks a bit about the idea of uh it not being the method that should be held close to foot but actually the the style and the art that you do so he's more than happy to say, here's how I did this thing technically. And he does that because he knows that you know people can't copy his style by just yeah. copying his method. And that that seems a bit related to what you're talking about there. Yeah, no, I, I think I think we have a lot of lessons to learn from from film and from art and like, you know, like ultimately like good art happens without expectations. It happens, you know, with complete clear ability to express yourself and then also to experiment and i think that like you need the same conditions for entrepreneurship and you know it's a it's an artistic emotive expression so yeah you said this a couple times in the in the idea of the kind of ecosystem being overwhelmed perhaps or over busy or there being lots of noise and that being people getting more guarded about their methods maybe that's part of why the you know the petri dish being not overloaded with uh, with stimuli is important because people don't guard their methods quite as closely. I'm actually curious on that same vein. You put it out there, and as a film student, I have to kind of double click. So I mean, you, you like Jodorowsky. I, uh, what's your opinion on Werner Herzog? I don't think I have a strong enough opinion to to answer that question. Fair enough. <laughs> For people who have no idea what this is, go through. Talk through your opinions on what, you know, Jodorowsky's Dune could have been. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so I think, I think first of all, again, it's like this notion of not... So Jodorowsky's Dune was incredibly influential to a number of people who took pieces of, of his ideas. So like Ridley Scott in Alien, you know, took, took a lot of inspiration from like the work that him and like Mobius like did to come up with a lot of, you know, these different forms and, and, and shapes of, of sort of, you know, the, the, the beings that exist inside of, inside of June. Going back to your question again, so it's, it's sort of like, what, what could it have become or? 
Yeah, I guess why is it important? I mean, why maybe even just up-leveling one, why is surrealist film important in general? Why does this matter to you? Yeah, this 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 matters because I have a lot of admiration for like I guess exploring spaces that are that allow you to question aspects of reality. Um I just like like the ending of the Holy Mountain where he kind of reveals a camera crew kind of observing this and he kind of plays back to the audience of like you realize that everything around you is staged and like you know is actually like in your mind it's just kind of like this huge reality check of wow we are so subject to our imagination and also like our imagination is magical at the same time and so like surreality is really important as a form of expression to explore that relationship and remind ourselves that we can imagine anything we can we don't have to take things seriously and then you know sometimes it's interesting to just explore the boundaries of existence and i have a lot of respect for people who can think that way so that's why i respect jodorowsky that's why i watch his interviews that's why i watch his work i find it important to be able to detach and to to admire from a distance is that i mean that kind of thinking differently is something i think you've you do very naturally now has that always been the case or is that something no, I, think, well, I mean, I think I, I think there's two things. There's one is um, having thoughts which are different, and two is so obviously growing up as an only child, um, I had a lot of space to think for myself. I think the second thing is believing that your ideas. Um, the thing is, any you know, like believing that your ideas are valid. So th- I often previously didn't listen to my conviction around things and let other people's thoughts get in the way. And so I think, I think that like, it's been this quest to, to continue to amplify the signal of my own conviction to the point where I'm now surrounded with enough people that um, support me in that. Like I found my community and my tribe in doing that. And I've also found my independence in doing that. And I've also found my, now I can back up my conviction with action. So whether it's investing in new things or building new things, whether it's, you know, exploring new things, I'm okay with sometimes being alone with those thoughts or sometimes being with a very small community. And that takes time. And that has taken time to, to propagate. That goes back to, I think, the first time you mentioned Paul Graham on this, in this conversation, you said something very similar, which was that he's able to maintain independence of thought despite the noise. Is that something that you feel? He just doesn't give a shit. And he, like, he genuinely just doesn't give a shit. And, like, you have to appreciate that in his madness, like, he is an ideas-connecting fire hose. Like, literally, his neurons have, like, explored idea space with such great fidelity that he can interconnect... He's an interconnection, ideas interconnection machine. He's a jazz musician of ideas, you know, like literally like any ideas, like, and he, it, he's seen and heard so much and thought about so much that when you talk to him about something random, like, you know, there actually the whole reason why our YC idea, why I did Snap Talent, which was a recruitment ad network, is because he misheard something that we were saying at dinner and said, maybe you guys could, could like go after an AdSense for jobs. And we're like, hold on a minute. That's kind of interesting. And then he just kind of started riffing like on that idea. And like, I saw him a few weeks ago and he's like, 
the same, but even more because he's like now had thousands of founders and he's heard about thousands of things and he spends all his day in England, like doing whatever he wants. He's just like, he's even more of a firehose and his brain has interconnected even more ideas. And so I have a lot of admiration for people that can go really wide across many different areas and start interconnecting them. And I think that's kind of a property that I admire. So if, if to steal kind of a Tyler Cohen question, uh, if, if interconnection is his kind of production function, yeah. what do you think is yours? I mean, I'm really good at interconnecting people. And I'm also, I think, again, interconnecting ideas uh, is important. Like, again, taking a, taking a cross-border, cross-border um, perspective takes a lot of, like, you've got to understand economics, you've got to understand culture, you've got to understand innovation, you've got to understand business models, you've got to understand market timing. Like, there's, like, a lot to chew on. And I think I'm attracted by the sort of complexity of that problem. Like, that's actually what keeps me engaged uh, on it. And actually, I don't know everything about it, and I want to know everything about it. And I want to be, like, the you know, the expert on that cross-border interconnection. And I think if there's like something I can focus on that creates a lot of value for humanity, it's going to be that because it's coming to me naturally and I've got to listen to that intuition. So I think it's like, yeah, I think it's like a polymathic interconnectedness, both across people as well as um, I'm, I have a graph database of people and what they do like in my head. And I'm really good at like interconnecting my network together and, you know, like my ability to propagate funding rounds and to, make things happen inside of my network, I want to be, I want to be operating that at scale. And I think doing that on a cross-border level is something that's going to be pretty interesting. You know, it's, I don't know them well enough, but I, but from what I know on the outside looking in, I think um, Paul and Jessica's skill sets are just like very perfectly complementary. I actually think that was kind of like a unit of effectiveness. Yeah. And it really does build on this like ideas and people and identifying benevolence and good and, and potential, I suppose. And then kind of helping them connect the neurons and have the aha moment. When you think of them, you've spent a lot more time with them. When you think of them as a unit, yeah, it sounds like you're similar in a lot of areas. Like you overlap on some of those kind of core skills or production function elements. Where are you kind of most different from that? I've spent a lot of time studying innovation. Like, you know, did the first census study of venture capital spending in the UK and Two thousand five at Quid, we built a system to understand markets and like their interconnections. Like that analytical component of understanding the value of something and seeing like its future. Obviously, it's kind of controversial to say, but I feel like I have really, really good taste around that, and I think that's part of what makes me a good investor. Alongside like the encouragement piece, it's not just like I believe in you. And, but I don't understand what you're doing. It's like I can see the future of what you're doing in many dimensions, and I can also see the human potential like behind this and like the component. And I think when you intersect those two things, what's different? I mean, they're both phenomenally great people, and I've learned a lot by interacting with them. And their belief in me was like really something that was striking, and I, I just live to to propagate that. And um, yeah, I think it's like. I think I want to do God mode for, for investing, for cross-border investing. I think that would make me very happy. I like it. I want to be cognizant of time. And the, the sign of any good interview is that my notepad that sits next to me has like much more double-clicking and branching paths to explore 
at the end of the interview than it does at the beginning. Uh, and this certainly qualifies as a, as a good episode on that point. So there's a bunch of stuff we could dive into, but maybe we'll do that in an episode too. As kind of a parting question, what is, uh, I guess, what do you consider your kind of relationship to optimism to be? Are you an optimist? Uh, I am an optimist. I'm kind of a, I'm an over generous optimist, I would say, which means that I think without judging something, I kind of believe in it first before I, you know, criticize it or kind of analyze it. And I think I'd want to, you know, like that is a sometimes a dangerous place to be because that can get you into many sticky situations <laughs> around, you know, human relationships and, um, you know, interactions with others. Because you get into situations where like you may overpromise because you're a yes person and you say yes to everything. So I think that there's like, there's a boundary. I'm definitely an optimist, absolutely an optimist. And, um, you know, someone who's positive, I try and maintain some level of pruning of my interactions just based upon, you know, some lessons learned around that. But yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a wealth of information into, uh, how do you do that as a yes person? How do you, how do you remain effective and not just say yes to everything? Yeah. Maybe good fodder for uh, a second conversation. Also, I'd love to go into global living and biochemistry and much of other stuff, but let's go ahead and pause there for folks that are, uh, that hear this and are curious to learn more about you. What's the best place to find you and maybe a plug for Medici? Yeah, so basically, you can go to my website, sumonsadu.com. You can find me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash sharpshoot. And then also subscribe to my Substack, medicigloval.substack.com to, to hear thoughts about, um, about global. Excellent. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and click stop record here, hang out for a second afterwards, and uh, would love to ask you one or two other questions. And other than that, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Tyler, for, uh, for bringing us back. Thanks.